Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible Unmasked. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30pm for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with The Bible Unmasked. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of The Bible Unmasked. The Bible Unmasked is a Bible study that airs on Sunday nights at 7.30 p.m. on YouTube and Plantation SDA TV. I'm your host, Lenny Anderson, and I'm here also with my husband, Paul Anderson. The goal of Bible Unmasked is to read the entire Bible uh, for the year of 2021. The reading plan is shared weekly during our Sabbath service and on social media. And we invite viewers to read uh, with family members and coworkers and text their questions in advance to 954-388-8780. So each week, um, the study is covered by uh, seasoned theologians and they will address um, the questions that come through for that week. So each month, um, we have a, a dedicated pastor to cover that week. So for the first week, we have um, Pastor Joseph Salajan, our senior pastor. And for the second week, we have Pastor Jennifer Hernandez. For the third week, we have Pastor Dexter uh, Thomas. And for the fourth week, we have Pastor McCoy. And for the fifth week, we have here our very own Pastor Paul Anderson. Uh, pastor Paul, we're going to ask you to go ahead and uh, give an overview of what we cover um, for this week, which were the chapters of Exodus 30 through to Leviticus 13. So before we do that, uh, let's just um, offer a word of prayer and we'll just give a, a brief summary of what we did cover for last week and, and exactly where we are in these passages of the Bible. So let us pray and we'll bow our heads. Loving Lord, we want to thank you so much for your awesome grace, your mercy, and for bearing with us in every stage and phase of life. We ask that you will be with us now as we break open your word and we study um, the words and messages that you have for us. And we know, dear Lord, that you've taken uh, care to give us these messages so that we can be closer drawn to you, so that we can understand how much you really love us. And we just pray that our minds will be open and our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Pastor Paul, so if we, you can just talk a little bit about um, and where we are in the reading and then give us an overview of, of what we're to expect as we go through all of the questions for this week's reading. All right. Well, uh, we have looked at uh, the beginning portion of Exodus and we were seeing where God initiated a, a covenant and Pastor McCoy did a good job uh, laying out that whole message uh, for us. I think he did a, a, an incredible job. And, and, and now uh, moving into where we are now, uh, we see that Israel, despite their rebellion, uh, God still provides promises that that helps them with second chances. And at Mount Sinai, God invites Israel into a covenant relationship. He actually desires to make them a nation of priests to be a blessing to the nations. But Israel unfortunately fails to follow God and, and, and trust him completely. So there, there are a few milestones that, that we see uh, taking place in the verses for, for this study that we're going through in Exodus 28 on to Leviticus 13. In the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus, we can recount how God miraculously delivered Israel from Egypt, okay? 
And as they approach Mount Sinai, God's presence covers the mountain in a very dark cloud. Moses climbs it as a representative for the people to receive God's law and a plan for God's own dwelling space, better known as the tabernacle. Now, this is, this is filled with symbolic garden of, of Eden imagery. You have the tabernacle where the people would come daily to, to offer their sacrifices, okay? So let me touch on the, the, the milestone. You have where God provided a covenant. Then you have the giving of the law. You have the tabernacle. You have the golden calf. And all of these experiences uh, provide like a framework for what we're going to review today. And actually we have some interesting questions that I look forward to getting into shortly. Okay, so let's, let's go to our first question. Now, um, this is straight out of Exodus 28, verse two. And you shall make a holy garment for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Shouldn't pastors wear sacred garments for glory and beauty? Well, that is an excellent question. Uh, the fact is, um, during the time of the sacrificial system, the priestly garb had a very specific role and, and, and purpose. And it, it fulfilled its mission and it actually prefigured Christ, meaning it was a type. Now, it's like, you know, if we were to use an example, does my wife need to wear a wedding dress every now and then to remind me that she's, she's my bride? Not at all. I know that because I wake up every morning, I see her right next to me, and I know this is my wife. Come home every day, and I see and know, yes, this is my wife. Now, when, when Christ actually came and died, the mission was fulfilled okay so it's like when we, we when we got married the mission was fulfilled uh or the the first part of the mission i would say meaning that we are together now and it's it's being fulfilled every day the fulfillment of it is the reality that we are living together we are one uh so the sacrificial system provided a framework in that the priests actually needed a garment which had a very, very specific role. In fact, the breastplate, uh, we call it the ephod, it had many stones on it that represented uh, the various tribes in the kingdom of Israel. This was also called a decision plate, uh, where if a decision, if, if, if a decision needed to be made um, and they asked God, a certain color or a certain section would light up. And as, as that uh, display would show, they would know exactly what it meant. They would know whether it meant yes or it meant no. You can read about that in, in Exodus 28, verse 9, or 29, rather. And uh, so the breast, the, the, the breast piece uh, was called like the breast piece of decision. So there was a very speci specific function of the garment. Uh, it had, you know, special stitching, um, and you know, it had different pieces to it, which made it very intricate. God provided, you know, these specifics. Are there any specifics now for, let's say, pastors? Not exactly. I mean, yes, we know that the suit is what is generally used for pastors, but is there a hard and fast to say, you know, it, you, you must wear a suit, you must wear a tie uh, because it's sacred? No, not necessarily. I would say, I'd venture to say it's cultural because, uh, you know, I remember visiting Ghana in Africa, you will have some pastors that like, uh, you know, the Western garment. Um, 
but they have some cultural garments that they consider to be very, very, very sacred uh, or to be used, let's say, when you're in a corporate worship. Well, uh, with that in mind, I, I do like what the Bible talks about um, in reference to this when, when it says that um, Aaron will wear it as a memorial um, to the Lord. Uh, at, at, on his heart, you know, um, as a a reminder that that these are the 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 pleadings with God for the people. So I, I really like, you know, how the the Bible phrases that and how the Bible puts that. I think that you know, in in the way that the Lord designed the priestly garments, there is story of you know love of carefulness you know just just like it says of, of beauty and glory so i do i like that point um the next question is taken from exodus 29 1 and it says shouldn't the sons of pastors also be consecrated to serve god as priests and pastors uh, that's a great question now I'm a pastor's son. I grew up that way, and uh, there were three of us. It was me, my eldest brother, Chris, along with uh, Joel, my youngest brother. And it was clear that we all did not receive the call. First of all, I would say this at this point in, in our lives have functioned well in our gifts. Okay, my brother, uh, he's an accountant, he's into business, that's his thing, and he does well in it. Um, my, my younger brother, uh, he's very good at counseling, psychology. Uh, he also has amazing uh, acting skills as well, and, and, and he has done well in that area. Uh, for me, I, I love the scriptures. I love sharing the word of God, uh, whether in sermon or Bible study or otherwise, but I just have a general passion and love for the scriptures. Now, the, the, the pastor's son has to be called. Now, here, here's the bottom line. The pastor's son has to be called just like any other son, okay? The pastor's son doesn't necessarily uh, have the right to that calling more than anyone else because or by virtue of that relationship or inheritance i should say this is not the royal family okay uh you you know the royal family if as long as you're along that bloodline it's it's your position you know is guaranteed the service of god becoming a pastor or being called to service as a pastor that is that is something where you have to receive a call and it's not based on whether you are a pastor's son come from a pastor's family or elder's family or what have you god calls everyone and anyone uh, and we know this to be true because of how he even selected the disciples they were all you know coming from <laughs> you know some really bad situations in life uh, even from bad homes, you know, single, single mother homes. They're coming from, you know, what we call the nuclear home. Some from coming coming from really rough parts of society. Uh, but call, God did that specifically to show that it doesn't matter where you you come from or what your 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 status or situation. You'll call anyone who's willing to serve. So um, just to just to expound on that a little bit, I think um, in that passage, it, it just makes you think that it would be generational because God calls Aaron and his sons. But um, what I think it's also showing is that there is a covenant there. So the, so the Lord makes a covenant with Aaron and his sons. Um, in that their line can carry out the priesthood. But um, it's just like a contract where if at any point that covenant is broken, then, you know, the, 
I guess the lineage in that case would be would be broken as well. You right. know, just like what happened with with um, Aaron's sons later on down the line. You know, so so I think, like you said, it's something where you have to be called, and in this case, God called and chose Aaron and his sons. Right. That leads us to um, Exodus twenty nine seven. So the question is, um, the Catholic Church still uses sacred incense mentioned in previous chapters and in this week's reading and anointing oil during religious ceremonies. Why has the Seventh-day Adventist Church mostly abandoned these biblical practices and others that were prescribed by God? Well, that's a great question. Uh, now, we know that all these practices uh, again, served a specific purpose, and they're no longer binding today. The only thing we we would do, I would say, uh, these days is use the oil for for an anointing service. Okay. Now let, let's think let's let's think of it this way: if you're if you're planning a trip to New York and you get on the road, what do you need? You probably need a GPS. You use a GPS to get to your destination. But when you arrive, do you need a GPS any longer? Not at all. So all these symbols uh, within the sacrificial system was a type. Was, they were all pointed. It, it didn't matter uh, whether it was the bread, the oil, um, the lamb, you know, you can just trace the whole process from start to end and you saw Christ in every part. So the Seventh-day Adventist Church in spe specifically has not abandoned, but rather uh, embraced the fact that God fulfilled, Jesus was a fulfillment of all these symbolisms. They all pointed to Christ and you know we're going to see that more and more as we as we have our discussion here uh but the the short the short answer to this question is definitely that we have not abandoned but we are utilizing the aspects that actually still allows us to um, engage in a way that that christ modeled and i'm going to talk about christ model a little later the um i know like uh, when we talk about these symbols right the the symbols used you know show basically visual representations of principles that god was also trying to come to um relate to the people as well so it's you know it's one of those things where as knowledge increases we understand um you know more about the bible and we understand more about remembering what specific symbols mean as we have a compilation of the the symbolism portrayed over and over in the bible so we understand a lot of what um, these practices mean and they were fulfilled in jesus christ so True. we don't need to um continue to do um some of these practices or most of these practices because you know they have been fulfilled through jesus we can see them clearly in what we what we study in the bible as a whole so i think you know that's really that's really interesting you know because god always wanted wants to come down to our level and right. to show us exactly you know what he means and that was what he was doing in giving those um symbols in those biblical practices. So our next question comes from Exodus 29, 20, and it reads, then slaughter it and apply some of its blood to the right ear bowls of Aaron and his son. So on their ears and put it on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet splatter the rest of the blood against all the sides of the altar can you explain the meaning for this verse when you look at uh the sacrificial uh process it, it was a very, very gruesome uh 
seen. I mean, you could start with uh, when the, the lamb was brought um, to court or the entrance of the, the, the tabernacle, and the sinner would have to place his hand over on the basically the animal's head. The priest would slit the throat, and the blood would start to to gush. Okay. Now just follow that from from that point all the way to where that that lamb is being sacrificed. Okay. You had to pour the you know you had to sprinkle the blood as well as the scripture outlines. You know it, it reminds us that it was it was Christ's blood. You think about his his trip that led up to Calvary. It was a very bloody experience. And you know, for those of you who watch Passion of, of the Christ, uh, you would <laughs> you would understand. But the fact is that blood here represents Christ's spilled blood on our behalf. Christ spilled his blood so that we could be made whole. We could be cleansed. We could be uh, free. Now, free freedom here uh, doesn't mean that uh, sin will not affect you any, any any longer, but at least you you are released from from the guilt because you know now it is God's God's blood, the spilled blood that Christ shed for us, and also in 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 in, in, in this type. Christ being that type, we see where it, this represented Christ's blood being spilled for us. Okay, yeah, I um I know like you know representative here they put it on each of their you know each of these body parts, right? And so it's like they had to put their hands on the head, yeah. you know, so that directly connects you know with that part of the body you know your your head or your mind or you know that that part of your your body and then they go to the ears and then the the hands and feet so it's like they're they're consecrating each part of their body to the lord mm -hmm. um and and you know pointing to the fact that it's in subjection to christ so the next question um is Exodus 29:42 and the the passage says these burnt offerings are made each day from generation to generation offer them in the Lord's presence at the tabernacle entrance there I will meet you and spew shouldn't we offer burnt offerings to God well we are already established that uh the the sacrificial system came to an end. And maybe I should go through that. So when Christ died on the cross, uh, up until the time that Christ died, the sacrif sacrificial system was still uh, in motion. And the, the, the leaders, you know, <laughs> you know, they highly, that this was it. This was their salvation. Uh, essentially the works, what went into all that took place in the sacrificial uh, process. When Christ died, the veil ripped in two, which signified that this whole system, this whole process had come to an end. There was no need for any lambs, any animals to be sacrificed from that point because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was the anti-type. I want to say also that God is not looking for a burnt offering anymore. We don't need to go find an animal and, and you know slaughter it and prepare it and offer it up to the Lord. What God is looking for is the, the offering of ourselves, of our talents, our resources. So Right. Um, our hearts. Our, our hearts, our essentially. Hearts. Yeah. Okay, so our next question um, 
comes from Exodus 29, 42 to 43. Is the church building today uh, such a, a place of encounter with God? So is that a place for us to encounter God? Well, most certainly. I believe the church has been provided to uh, give us a place where we can corporately come before the Lord, uh, worship him, uh, receive a message, sing songs of praise, and be edified, be exhorted uh, in the word to prepare us for service. And it's, you know, when you think about it, the church is really a place of training. It's not just a place where you go and get your feel good worship on, but it's really meant to be a place of training uh, where we can, you know, receive practical advice, guidance from God's word so we know how to live our lives. We don't fall into the traps and sneers that the enemy uh, sets for us. So our next question is uh, from Exodus 30, verse 12, where it says, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord when thou numberest them. And there will be no plague among them when thou numberest them. So then uh, going down to 15, it says, The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than a half a shekel when they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. So the question is, how, how does God expect the rich and the poor to contribute monetarily equally? Okay, well, what I think... Uh we need to consider here is that God is looking for faithfulness. He requires faithfulness. And in, in Malachi chapter 3, we see uh, an outline there of, of how God expects us to return uh, a portion of our resources. But the emphasis is not there, okay? The emphasis is on the fact that God loves a cheerful giver, okay? So if we think of um, the, the situation with the widow's might, okay? You had people who were given uh, much more than she, she had. So, so let me just clarify the question one mm -hmm. second because um, I, I, it's a two point, it's, it's, I guess it's a two part question. So the part that I asked it, um, and the part that comes after is what you're referring to. So, um, they ask because of the passage, how does God expect the rich and poor to contribute monetarily equally? Right. But then, um, the, the second part of the question is a comparison with tithing where God uses the principle of proportionality where you know the the rich gives a percentage of what they make as well as the poor so it's the same percentage why doesn't the same principle apply here when it comes to the the passages we read where it talks about ransom money so i just wanted to clarify the question because i i um i i missed that part so. oh sure absolutely mm -hmm. so when it comes to tithing god uses the principle of pro proportionality whereby the rich gives more and the poor gives less we use the widow's might and we know that the, the the widow essentially she gave all that she had uh the rich gave a portion it might have been big it might have been a, a large sum but it was it was uh it was all she had so from the widow's mind, we see where, you know, even though other people gave big money, um, which seemed impressive to, they, they thought it was impressive to God. It was the widow's mind that impressed God because this was selfless giving. And I, I believe this is what God calls us to do. Give from the heart. Okay. And then um, the... I guess the reference to ransom money, you know, would be for everyone to provide, provide an amount, I guess, for their stake in the community, for their numbering, Correct. their numbering in the community as they set up uh, the community for, for the Israelites. Okay, so the next question is Exodus 31, 13 says, you may observe my Sabbaths 
while Exodus 31, 14 says, observe the Sabbath with reference to the weekly Sabbath. Why is Sabbath in plural in verse 13? Does that include the annual feast? Shouldn't we keep those Sabbaths as well? Excellent question. Now, we know that those Sabbaths were part of the ceremonial days or holy days. Uh, so essentially, there were days designated as Sabbaths, okay? And Sabbaths here uh, did not necessarily mean the seventh day, okay? Uh, Sabbath is synonymous with holy, okay? So there was a, a day designated, uh, meaning a, a, a time period, you know, for that day, then this would be considered uh according to the feast days as a sabbath okay or or or, or you know these were the sabbath the sabbaths that were set aside yeah like holy for, days right and uh, again they were part of the ceremonial system which after it met its fulfillment with uh, jesus dying on the cross uh there were no no need because these days they were set aside to remind the people of what God did and it was to look ahead to see when Christ would come and he would fulfill all things right and 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 he would put an end to this whole system because now we had direct access to God I think that's beautiful because, you know, the, the Lord still wants to establish his divine time with us, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, in meeting with him on weekly Sabbaths. But then the ceremonial Sabbaths were to represent, you know, um, different parts of God's plan of salvation that he was, he was representing to us in, in um, having those Sabbaths. So then the next question talks about um, the, the Lord's changing his mind. So Exodus 32, 14 says, so the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. So um, just to, to set the stage, this was right after, um, you know, the Lord was communing with Moses on the Mount. And he said that he told Moses the, the people are defiling themselves in 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 that they were worshiping the gold and you know you can read in deep more detail you know and you can imagine the scene of what's going on when it even talks about them being naked in the camp at that point so they were reveling and going on in such a way of worshiping this um golden calf that they had created that you know the lord had told moses you know quickly go away from me so that, you know, I can bring a, a terrible disaster on the, on the people as they were um, making uh, uh, this merry um, bacchanal in, in the very presence of God. So that was where that came from, where, you know, God was speaking about, about that to Moses. And so, you know, Moses pleaded with him. So, so that's where you get the verse talking about God changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened. So does the Lord change his mind? And what can we do to prompt him to change his mind? So I think um, it, it, it kind of reveals itself in, in the response of, of Moses, right? Sure. Uh, you know, you set it up very, very well for us. Um, Moses was here um, having to be the liaison or, or the mediator between the people and God. Um, essentially, God was saying, um, you know, while we're up here having this conversation and we're setting things up, um, you know, for the people to go into the promised land that I, I provided, Moses, you don't realize, but right now they are defiling themselves. <laughs> You know, they're breaking my commandments, essentially, right now. And you know what? I can't stand by and just watch this. I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to just remove them, wipe them off uh, the, the face of this, this, this planet. 
what what I thought was funny about it was that um, you know Moses actually pleaded with God before he actually saw what they were doing. Sure. You know, I mean, because when he actually went down and saw what they were doing, he got very angry, if you could, you know, put it that way as well. So, you know, it's 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 one of those things that you know he pleaded with God even before he knew the magnitude of their sin right. and God considered his request being that he's so close to, you know, Moses mm -hmm. and then Moses actually sees and then, you know, kind of, I guess, even, even realizes like the, the gravity of what is really going on. So, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, absolutely. I thought that was like, you know, one of those things, you know, and God changes his mind right then at the request of, of Moses. That's right. Uh, some people can read into this to seem as though God is, uh, if he's convinced, he'll change his mind, uh, but not, not necessarily. You see, some prophecies are conditional while some are unconditional. And the condition is usually according to man's response. Um, if you think about the, the, the blessings and the curses, uh, Pastor McCoy touched on that, did a very good job there. All of this was hinged upon man's obedience. If you, if you obeyed, then things would go well. If you didn't, then it may not have gone as well as you would like. If you use Nineveh as an example, when Jonah was commissioned to, to go to Nineveh, the condition for them to be speared was if they turned, if they made the decision to accept God's forgiveness, to accept God's uh, mercy, then he would not destroy them. Can God change his mind? Yes, in that sense, when, you know, just think about it, you know, that's what God's grace is, is, is all about. God's grace says, give the sinner a second chance. So, if you have been going down a road that, that is certainly going to lead to destruction, but yet, you know, midway you say, you know, God gives you an experience, just like, you know, the Apostle Paul, when he was struck down on the way to Damascus, um, and, 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 and God says, hey, why are you fighting against me? You know, Paul said, wow, you know, I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but you know what? In essence, if you give me another chance, uh, I promise you I will, I will I will serve you. And that's that's what Paul did. And we know he became a dynamic speaker and uh, a servant of the Lord. So um, along with that story, you know, comes the, the next or that part of the, the story mm -hmm. comes the next question. So the I guess the, the next part of that was in verse 32, where um, the Lord says, now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. And I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. So the question is, is the Lord quick to anger? Well, to answer that, we know that in, uh, in Exodus 34, um, if, you, if you look at, at verses 5 through 7, this is where Moses wanted to see um, God. You know, at, at this point, he was so impressed by God. He was like, you know, he was he was feeling so intimately connected. And he said, God, can you show me your glory? Can you show me your face? Um, of course, God could not show his face um, for obvious reasons that we're going to we're going to talk about in a little bit. But I'm going to read from verses five through seven. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, gracious, long-suffering. Long-suffering here means patient and slow to anger and abundant in goodness and truth. Keep in mercy for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children and the unto the third and fourth generation. So essentially, God is saying, listen, I am merciful, I'm kind, I'm gracious, very patient, long-suffering. My desire is not to destroy anyone, okay? However, I am a God of justice as well. So, uh, and that, that's why he says, forgiven iniquity, transgression, and sin, 
but will by no means clear the guilty. So someone who persists and will remain um, in their sin will not relent, will not repent, will certainly have to experience the wrath. They have to experience judgment uh, at some point in time. The next question um, is still about this part of the story. So right after that, um, you know, Moses goes down, he sees the scene, and then he, you know, he makes a proclamation or he asks, you know, who is with him and the Lord? And so um, the Levites respond and they go to Moses. So he said, today you have ordained yourself for the service of the Lord, for you obeyed him, even though it meant killing your own sons and brothers. Today you have earned a blessing. So basically, the Levites um, were used as an instrument of justice to, I guess, um, I don't know the word that you would use, but to kill the, you know, like the the graven act that was performed. It was a big slaughter, basically. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, you know, the the act of of the um, the Israelites, you know, defiling themselves and um, sinning in this great way. So sure. the question is, do we have to kill our own children and take other drastic measures to prove our obedience to God? No, we, we don't have to sacrifice our children or any family member for that matter to appear uh, pleasing to God or to appease his anger. Um, no, that because the Bible says, God is slow to anger, which means that he's, he's long-suffering. He's full of love and mercy. Um, his, his anger is just um, a way of saying his justice is not always uh, quick. His, his justice is sometimes delayed to give the sinner uh, a chance, uh, just like we see the situation with, with Lucifer. Could God have delivered swift, quick uh, justice? Certainly. And he could have wiped Lucifer along with all the rebellious angels. But God said, no, let me give and provide time for this, this whole situation to play out. And we will see. We will see who's, who's right here. Um, God, you know, God had his, his law which was a law of love uh, on his side. And Lucifer essentially was proud and arrogant and he wanted to be rebellious. And he thought that way of being would be the catalyst to say, hey, I deserve uh, worship. I deserve to be adored as um, a being that's a little higher than God. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, one of the things to note, like just to be clear, um, God has stated, you know, uh, in several places in the Bible, um, you know, rebuking child sacrifice, those were uh, usually um, characteristics of heathen, um, heathen mm -hmm. cultures and idol worship. Correct. And, you know, he stated over and over, and I know that, um, he doesn't desire for anyone to perish and you know what we what we um see here in this scene is basically it's it's more like transgressors and they're having to have been swift justice in this case right. you know and and um and that's why you know the levites had to have the role that they did in in um, carrying out that mission at, the, at that point. So um, the next question comes from Exodus thirty-three twenty. So it states, "But you may not look directly, for no one may see me and live. If God is our Father, why can't we see His face? Will that change when we go to heaven?" That's a great question. Now, because of our sinful nature, God's glory would destroy us. Okay. Uh, in other words, if if uh, when 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 Moses requested to see God's face, if God were to actually uh, reveal His face, uh, 
you know, Moses would not be able to live because in, in, in God's presence, sin cannot exist. And, and anything that has sin would immediately be destroyed. Now, that all changes, of course, when we get to heaven because we will become immortal creatures and we will be able to view him beyond the veil, uh, essentially. But right now we are, we are limited with the possibility until that change comes. We have to wait until our change comes in order to have that experience. Right. So, so in, in heaven, it will be, you know, that we'll be clothed in righteousness. So we'll, mm -hmm. we'll essentially be clothed in, in God's glory, you know, which was our original covering. Correct. And, um, you know, we see in, in all these encounters with God, you know, where he comes to, um, he comes to the camp as a pillar of smoke. He comes to the camp as a pillar of fire. He has to um, veil his glory in some way so that, um, you know, like, so that we are not, we are not consumed by, by it, you know? And um, that's interesting because, you know, he, he came down to the camp in these instances because of a great desire to be with us. That's right. You know, and it, in order for God to be with us, he he has to protect us you know in our feebleness and our sin he has to protect us by veiling himself so that you know we can even have that encounter with him so you know it's something that we should cherish and then you know the the other part of it that's that's um you know a great part of the story too is that when Moses is in the presence of God and he comes down to everybody else. His face is shining. And in order for him to talk to the people, he has to veil his face, which right. is like, you know, that's mind blowing too, oh. right? Because now he really has to, um, I mean, that's not something that he, he knew or he could tell that his face was shining, but everybody else could tell and they were you know, marveling, they couldn't look at his face directly and he had to veil his face in order to talk to them. And then when he went to talk to God, he, he unveiled his face. But when he went back to, to speak to everyone else, he had to veil his face again. So that was interesting. Yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, the next part is talking about the festivals of harvest and unleavened bread, which are um, discussed with the Sabbath. Shouldn't we mm -hmm. also keep them? I think um, you were kind of talking about that in some of the previous um, answers that you gave about the feast days. Should, should we also keep them? Well, this also speaks to all the symbolisms that's wrapped up in the ceremonial system. If someone wants to, you know, partake of unleavened bread, that, that's fine. But it really means nothing now. If we look at Jesus' model, Jesus provided the bread, he provided the wine, he blessed them both, and, and they ate and drank. Would, would Jesus disobey the command? Not at all. So uh, this, is, this, this was a symbolism that was uh, found in the feast days. This was a part of the feast days experience. Uh, and every aspect of that experience pointed to Christ, okay? Jesus was essentially the bread, bread that came down from heaven. And the Bible tells us, man shall not live bread alone, but uh, every word, you know, the word of God is synonymous to bread, you know? We got to eat our daily bread, um, and our bread is Jesus. The bread here represents Christ. Okay, so um, I think some of the other questions um, as, ask, are asked along the same line, lines with the feast and everything like that. So um, I think you basically covered that by um, talking about um, the symbolism and what it symbolizes 
pointing to Christ. And I think that is um, even a more in-depth study if you want to go through, you know, like what each symbol means and what the feast days are. So, um, you know, as we unpack what the Bible has to tell us, you know, I, I believe that we'll be able to uncover even more of that. So let's um, go and uh, talk about a little bit of what is um, covered in Leviticus, um, where, you know, um, instructions are given to the children of Israel through Moses so that they can they can conduct themselves as a society uh, and 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 uh, it provides different benefits as instructions that the Lord gives them to live. So um, here we have a question from Leviticus 5.1. If you're called to testify, testify about something you have seen or that you know about, is it simple to refuse to testify and will you be punished for your sin? Shall we find ways not to testify when we get subpoenas, subpoenaed as witnesses, or would that be a sin pursuant to this verse? Well, everything must be taken into context. You know, God does, does not expect us to be foolish. Uh, if, if you were to be a witness, and it would mean risking your family's safety or placing your family in a, a dangerous position that would you know obviously you you'd be thinking twice about, about becoming a, signing up to become a witness uh but there are certain things that are that are not worth your life okay and, and i believe here you have to be wise and yes you should we should always defend the truth when it is absolutely necessary but you know you, you also have to consider when you're dealing with a corrupt system you're dealing with corrupt police police departments you know police brutality and so on and so forth sometimes it is best to just allow them to carry out their investigation because it, you know if you if you are you know too anxious uh you might be putting yourself in harm's way needlessly thinking you're you're helping out a situation when you could very well be placing yourself or your family in danger uh, for a situation. But, but in every situation, you gotta, you gotta put things into context and of course know whether, um, you know, this is, this is the right move here uh, to become a witness. Let me go ahead and set up to become a witness. Yeah, and then, um, you know, one of the, of course, one of the commandments of God is not to bear false witness Correct. against your neighbor. So, you know, if the, if there's something or some truth that needs to be revealed and we need to reveal it, then, you know, that would be the course of action that we should take. That's right. So our next question um, is found in um, Leviticus 1 through 6. So why did God offer so many different kinds of offerings? Birth offering, grain offerings, fellowship offering, sin offering, guilt offering, etc. Were all offerings a foreshadow of Christ's self-sacrificing offering for sin? Yeah, so all of these offerings were essentially um, provided as a way to remind remind the people that it is important to come before the Lord and 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 God is a, is a God of variety certainly by by offering you know your fellowship offering your sin offering your guilt offering or what have you it, it just reminded us that um, eventually when Christ came and he died we need to take everything to God in prayer okay? whether it's about you know our food you know whether it's about uh whatever provisions daily provisions we need um we need to take everything to god in prayer so here we see that you know the different kinds of offerings uh and we wonder like man why what well simply because you know god is a god of variety and he had 
to find there, there had to be different ways that the people offer it for, for specific purposes of course all of these offerings had a specific purpose and and you know when we go to god each time we go to god there, there might be a different purpose you know we're, we're not always going to go to god and, and repeat the same prayer or ask for the same things each time we go to god we're going to talk about different things different needs Okay, so that leads us to our last question that we're going to be able to cover for tonight. So um, with that, some sins require a guilt offering. Are some sins more serious than others? Is a little harmless lie less severe than adultery? All right. Well, uh, sin is sin. Okay, there is no harmless sin and you know, if if I were to use an example, if if I'm an unrepentant liar, and you are an unrepentant murderer, okay, um, when Jesus comes, we would both we would both be lost, and we as human beings we tend to treat sin uh, with categories, okay, and degrees. You know, some being higher, some being lower. But God does not do that. He does not treat sin within categories. Right, because it comes from the same, let's call it the same sinful heart, like the mm -hmm. same darkness in your heart. Right. And usually, um, you know, when sins, uh, you know, like eventually carry themselves out, you know, um, sins that we, we think are maybe more terrible than other sins, it's usually because, uh, you know, um, other sins started as a practice first before it, it rose up into, you know, what, what would be categorized by a person as like, you know, something so heinous or horrible. Mm -hmm. So it, it gives even more evidence to say that every sin is sin, because once you start to um, foster sin in your heart and, you know, like, nurture it and keep it there then you go down a road that you know maybe at one point in your life you would never even fathom that you could um you could go down a road that you could go down or commit a sin as terrible as you know a situation that you find yourself in the road so you know i think that that's something important to remember that that's why god sees every you know well yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't say why but but every sin is sin because the gravity is not is not what's at stake here it's mm -hmm. it's your heart is at stake you know everything that you nurture that's what you become so sure. so i think that um you know we had a, a wonderful set of questions and a wonderful study um, tonight, I know that this is usually a part of the Bible that, you know, like uh, <laughs> maybe scares some people or, you know, people are taken aback about, you know, all these requirements or what is said. But I think if we, you know, take some time to really, you know, uh, look through some of these things, we would understand that, um, you know, these are all principles, like they all stem from principles that God is trying to teach us. And usually he gives us practical applications so that, you know, we can understand based on where we are in our lives as well. So um, I just want to invite uh, viewers to read for the upcoming week, our next section, uh, which will be Leviticus 14 through 27. And you can text your questions to 954-388-8780. And um, you can basically break those down into pieces, read, read a section daily. Um, but you know, if you get if you get fully engrossed and fully intrigued, then by by all means continue. But um, you can break those up into pieces so you can further understand and go ahead and send your questions as you um, have them. Okay, so next week our presenter and host will be um, Pastor Joseph Salajon and our um, Anne Levon Brown will be your host. 
So I want uh, to thank everyone for tuning in and for joining. And uh, we'll just have our prayer to close. And I hope you have a blessed week. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for revealing who you are in these scriptures. And we just want to praise you, want to give you all the glory because you are a good God. And I pray that you will bless everyone who has studied with us and who will study and continue to go through the scriptures. Bless them, bless their families, and help us all to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Praise God. All right. Bye, everyone. Have a great week. Plantation SDA Church presents The Bible and Must. Read your Bible daily and join us every Sunday at 7.30 p.m. for our weekly discussion. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, let's read the entire Bible in 2021 with The Bible Unmarked.